This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit shalcedon.edu to download this book in PDF. The One and the Many by R.J. Rushjini. Copyright 1971-2007, Mark R. Rushjini. Shalcedon Ross House Books. Chapter 7. The Return of Dialectic Thought. Section 1. Butius. In the philosopher Butius, died 525, an early example of the scholastic method and framework can be seen. In his theological tractates, we have a spirited defense of the orthodox Christian faith. In the consolidation of philosophy, written in prison awaiting death, we have an expression of a faith in the face of death which never refers to Jesus Christ or to Christianity. The gap between the two sets of documents is not as great as it would appear. Butius defended the doctrines of the Trinity and the two natures of Christ. He was theologically committed to the Orthodox faith, but he was philosophically committed to the old formata dialectic, and this late latter commitment was decisive in his thinking. When faced with death, he turns to that philosophy. For Butius, God is form. Quote, but the divine substance is form without matter and is therefore one and is its own essence. End quote. And quote. So then, if God be predicated thrice of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the threefold predication does not result in plural number. The risk of that, as has been said, attends only on those who distinguish them according to merit. But Catholic Christians, allowing no difference of merit in God, assuming him to be pure form and believing him to be nothing else than his own essence, rightly regard the statement, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and this Trinity is one God, not as an enumeration of different things, but as a reiteration of one and the same thing, like the statement, blade and brand are one sword, or... Son, son, and son are one son. End quote. <clears throat> it is not our concern here to analyse Butius as a theologian, but to call attention to his basically philosophical orientation and concern. As Butius further stated of God, quote, Again, concerning his form, we have already shown that he is form and truly one without plurality. End quote. It is already apparent that the faith Butius was most zealously defending was Hellenic, and the trinity he championed was outwardly Christian, but inwardly Greek. Quote, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. End quote, from Genesis 27-22. There was no lack of earnestness and sincerity on the part of Butius, the new faith seemed an admissible means of expression and a true representation of the old philosophy. Accordingly, for Butius, God was the great universal, the true one, but God did not represent plurality or particularity because God is not matter, and plurality and particularity are attributes of matter. In De Fide Catholica, Butius affirmed the doctrine of creation because he was recounting the biblical narrative. But, in dealing with the same question philosophically, his answer is radically different. Quote, Number six, everything that is 
participates in absolute being through the fact that is everything that is participates in absolute being through the fact that it is it exists in order to be something it participates in something else hence that which exists participates in absolute being through the fact that it exists but it exists in order to participate in something else number 7 Every simple thing possesses as a unity its absolute and its particular being. Number eight. In every composite thing, absolute and individual being are not one and the same. Number nine. Diversity repels, likeness attracts. That which seeks something outside itself is demonstrably of the same nature as that which it seeks. End quote. It is... In this thoroughly Hellenic perspective, the distinction between the divine being of God and the created being of the universe and of man is lost. There is instead one common being in which all things participate. Their particularity is their individual being. Their absolute being is God. This is the Hellenic rationalism which characterized scholasticism. The theology of Butius, moreover, is not biblical theology. It is, at all times, rational theology, and the defence of orthodoxy is to be undertaken on rational grounds. Section 2. Scholasticism It is this characteristic that has led scholars to describe Butius as the first scholastic. The scholastics, moreover, had an academic orientation, which brings them closer to the 20th century era than to any other age. Intellectual inquiry was directed primarily to the analysis and critique of what other scholars had to say about any question rather than to satisfying either the questions of the naive mind or of practical living. The inquiry could be rationalistic, empirical and theoretical or practical, but it was always academically oriented. <coughs> Moreover, the scholastic, as well as much of the medieval world, were marked by the eminence of youthfulness. Pieper has well described this aspect of medieval thought. Quote, we happen on another surprising element in the history of medieval philosophy when we consider Abelard and Bernard, namely how young these writers and magistri were when they began their public activity. Nothing is wider of the mark than the image of the white-bearded monk sitting in cells remote from the bustle of the world and penning on parchment their tractates. Butius was all of twenty years old when he wrote the first of his books, which were to influence so many centuries to come. He began the commentaries on Aristotle at twenty-five. At thirty, Anselm of Canterbury was prior in Lebec. Bonaventura, already a university teacher at 27, was called at the age of 36 to be, a gen to be general of a Franciscan order that already spread through the entire West. Duns Scotus wrote his principal work, The Enormous Opus Oxoniensi, at the age of 35, and William of Ockham was only 25 when he turned his back for good upon his distinguished career in science and letters. End quote. <clears throat> Youthfulness flourishes in a deeply rooted culture which 
has vitality and communicates it readily and early to its sons. A dying culture, or a new one, is often dominated by age, by older men, in that it takes men longer, amid the shaking foundations and rubble, to develop roots and to establish their thinking in terms of them. Despite their asceticism at times, and their celibacy, medieval students and masters were far more at home in the world than our 20th century humanists. Some, indeed, feared that they were too much at home in the world. With many, however, there was instead a progressive extension of the claims of Christ Christian man in the world and over the world. St Thomas Aquinas, 1224 or 1225 to 1274, clearly represented this approach. In 1263, Pope Urban IV, a champion of this concept, reminded scholars that the decree of 1231 of Pope Gregory IX, while it forbade the teaching of Aristotle as mediated by the Arabs, called for scholars to examine and interpret Aristotle for the faith. William of Morbica and Thomas Aquinas were summoned to the papal court to assume the task of assimilating Aristotle into the Christian world of thought. Aquinas's purpose reflected a supreme confidence, a confidence shared by many, that an establishment of Christian truth upon the foundation of the reason of autonomous man was possible. The reason of autonomous man could, it was held, establish the truths of revelation out of sense, experience, and by the empirical method. Section 3. Aquinas' Task It should be noted that it was the truths of revelation which Aquinas sought to establish. Far more than the Arminian Protestant thinkers, who are his philosophical heirs, Thomas was dedicated to maintaining the truths of Scripture and affirming biblical theology. He held to the orthodox theology, to the eternal decree of predestination, to the centrality and authority of revelation for faith, and to the doctrine of creation, but he also believed that these doctrines could, to a large degree, be confirmed by the reason of autonomous man. He could declare, as he often did, that... The authority of Scripture suffices, but it was not his concern to begin on the foundation of Scripture, but to move upward to God from sense experiences and deductions made from them by an independent, autonomous reason. From this foundation of autonomous man, Aquinas hoped to demonstrate Romans 1.20, quote, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. End quote. Let us examine the implications and consequences of this Thomistic approach in its most conservative phase, its application to theology, its defence of the faith. <clears throat> Section 4 Thomistic Dialecticism. The basic approach of Aquinas is dialectical and the two aspects he is intent on reconciling are nature and grace. Nature and grace are, for Aquinas, not two hostile worlds, but rather in close and integral relationship. It is on this foundation that he is confident that autonomous natural reason will lead directly to the truths of revelation, which is its perfection. Rightly used, reason leads to revelation. Quote, 
Since therefore grace does not destroy nature but perfects it, natural reason should minister to faith as the natural inclination of the will ministers to charity. End quote. As Anne Freeman, Fremantle has pointed out, quote, St. Thomas's philosophy is based on the premise that knowledge and being are correlative, in so far as a thing is, it is knowable, and in this resides its ontological truth. End quote. The method of this premise is the analogia entis, the analogy of being, which bypasses both rationalism and irrationalism for analogy. Since knowledge and being are correlative, God, as true being, is what the analogous concept, thought, signifies, and much, much more. The analogy of reason makes known what being signifies, and the superanalogy of faith makes known the infinite reaches of being, which the analogy of region, reason cannot extend to. Man's reason works from below and extends upward. It can extend upwards with assurance, both because of its correlativism with being and because of its freedom from the taint or of the fall. For, quote, the intellect is always true as regards essence, end quote, according to Aquinas. This is true for both men and angels, along with di although with differences. As Cornelius Van Til has pointed out, quote, the analogia entus idea rests finally on the notion that man can interpret himself in terms of himself. The god of the analogia entus idea is wholly beyond and therefore wholly meaningless, or else he is wholly within and therefore wholly useless. In this respect, it is outdone by nothing more thoroughly than Barth's analogia fidei. The historic Protestant idea of God's revelation in Christ through scripture rather than Bath's Analogia Fidei, is the true answer to the Analogia Entus idea. End quote. The principle of intellectual operation is the soul of man. And, quote, The intellectual soul itself is an absolute form and not something composed of matter and form. End quote. Moreover, quote, We must assert that the intellectual principle which we call the human soul is incorruptible. End quote. For, quote, being belongs to a form, which is an act by virtue of itself, and thus matter acquires actual being according as it acquires form, while it is corrupted so far as the form is separated from it, and therefore it is impossible for a subsistent form to cease to exist. End quote. Being is good, although, in idea, being is prior to goodness. Every being, as being, is good. Evil is not to be ascribed to being, but is a lack of being. Quote, no being is said to be evil, considered as being, but only so far as it lacks being. Thus, a man is said to be evil, because he lacks the being of virtue. As primary matter has only potential being, so... Is it only potentially good? End quote. As Herbert has noted, quote, we can rightly speak of the being of the devil as good, for the devil must ex hypothesi be sustained in being from moment to moment by God. End quote. More, quote, the idea of evil is contrary 
to that of the first cause, in that only that which really is, and therefore is good, can be a cause at all, end quote. Quote, St. Thomas's thesis is, good and being are really one, hence all that has been is good, end quote. In Aquinas's words, every being is good, omni ens est bonum. <clears throat> Evil is therefore a lack of being, a deprivation or a negation. Quote, the very nature of evil consists in the privation of good. Therefore, evil can be neither defined nor known except by good. End quote. Quote, evil is known by God, not through its own likeness, but through the likeness of good. Evil, therefore, has no idea in God, neither insofar as an idea is an exemplar, nor so far as it is a likeness, end quote. Quote, God does not will evils, end quote. The opposite to the notion of being is non-being. Evil is simply the absence of good. It is, quote, neither a being nor a good, for since being as such is good, the absence of being involves the absence of good, end quote. Evil is privation, and no privation has or is a being, and neither, therefore, is evil a being. How, then, is evil caused, since even matter, as a potentiality to good, has the nature of a good? It, quote, is caused by reason of the defect of some principle of action, either of the principle of the instrumental, either of the principle or the instrumental agent. End quote. Rather than being a deliberate covenant breaking by man the sinner, seeking to dethrone God and become as God, evil is basically accidental and passive, a byproduct of good. Quote, Hence it is true that evil in no way has any but an accidental cause. Thus good is the cause of evil. End quote. Since all being is good, the tendency and the goal of being is perfection in the good, in God. God alone is good essentially. The goodness of men is not creaturely obedience by faith to the revealed word of God, but by way of participation. Quote, Everything can be called good and a being inasmuch as it participates in the first being by way of a certain assimilation, although distantly and defectively. End quote. Instead of the biblical distinction between the uncreated being of God and the created being of man, Aquinas held to the Hellenic concept of a common world of being, although, quote, God is self-subsisting being itself, end quote, and, quote, all beings other than God are not their own being, but are beings by participation, end quote. Although Aquinas emphatically affirmed the doctrine of creation, his philosophy better described God as the source rather than the creator of other, other beings. A thing is being by participation rather than by creation, for all beings other than God are beings by participation. Section 5. Noetics and Ethics it is apparent that, by speaking of intellect in general as both form 
and as incorruptible, Aquinas was refusing to, quote, distinguish between the intellect of the regenerated and the intellect of the non-regenerated man, end quote. The moral differences between men have no epistemological significance for Aquinas. His concept of the intellect was one which ascribed neutrality to it. In this respect, he was clearly a partisan of the Arabic and Jewish enlightenment of that era. He saw the intellect as a passive power. Aquinas followed Aristotle in holding that intellect, quote, is like a tablet on which nothing is written, and quoted later, the origin of knowledge is from the senses, end quote. There is no knowledge apart from sense impressions, although the understanding of material things comes, quote, as they are abstracted from matter and from material images, namely phantasma, end quote. In this process, the intellect is always true. Where one is deceived, there is no right understanding. Quote, the proper object of the intellect is the quiddity in a thing, end quote. That is, the very entity of the thing. Quote, the intellect is not in error concerning this quiddity, end quote. But with respect to composition or division, and in the process of reasoning. Thus, quote, the intellect cannot err in regard to those propositions which are understood as soon as their terms are understood, end quote, as with first principles. Quote, but in the absolute consideration of the quiddity of a thing and of those things which are known thereby, the intellect is never deceived. End quote. In analysing this position, it is necessary to note that there are two basic approaches to the problem of noetics and ethics, the relationship of knowing to morality. First, it is often held that man's autonomous reason is able to discern and know, to know reality without reference to his ethical status, that is, whether or not he be a sinner. This is a position common to Hellenic thought, to Thomism, to the Arab and Jewish medieval enlightenments, to Kantianism, to neo-orthodoxy, and to existentialism, as well as to other philosophies. Man's basic problem is held to be metaphysical or epistemological. It is either a question of finitude or knowledge. Rationality is assumed to be neutral, and sin is stupidity or uninformed reasoning. All rational men will, with clear-cut argumentation, be brought to true knowledge. Hence, debate is basic to social process in order to bring forth truth, and the ideal of the university expresses this faith. The United Nations must further this necessary dialogue. Summit meetings between the great powers are necessary since it is held that, ultimately, the communists will listen to reason. This, for example, the premise of Eric Fromm, who stated in 1962 that dialogue with Hitler would have been impossible because he was lacking in sanity. But, quote, it seems quite clear that the Russian leaders of today are sane and rational people, end quote. The leaders of the Soviet Union are realistic men of common sense. Fromm advocated unilateral disarmament by the United States as a means of establishing a situation of trust and hence of rational negotiations. A premise of the US foreign aid program is that demonstrated goodwill 
can further diplomacy or sound reason. The Lutheran Karl Franke, in discussing the noetic effect of sin, sees man's renewal, in Van Til's words, quote, in the fact that the natural is after all quite powerful for good because he always remains a rational creature, and no rational creature is ever quite helpless, end quote. Thus, in every realm, political, theological, or epistemological, it is held that man's autonomous, autonomous reason can have valid and true knowledge without any determinative noetic effect by sin. The second basic approach to the relationship of knowledge and morality is the biblical faith that man's knowledge rests on a common religious premise with his ethical concepts. Man is either a covenant keeper or a covenant breaker with God. If man is a covenant breaker, his whole outlook, noetic and ethical, is coloured and shaped by his rebellion against God. He refuses to accept as his basic premise the sovereignty of God and God's eternal decree as revealed in Scripture. Instead, he asserts his own sovereignty and sees a world of brute factuality which can only be ordered ultimately by his creative interpretation and progressive control. For the one man, God is ultimate. For the other, his own rationality. For biblical faith, man's basic problem is not metaphysical, but ethical, his apostasy from God. And man's epistemological problem is also basically ethical. Man suppresses or holds down the truth in unrighteousness, from Romans 1.18. Apostate man suppresses the truth about reality because it witnesses to God and seeks to reduce factuality from a God-created, God-testifying reality to a position of neutrality, of brute factuality. A neutral reality, a world of brute factuality, is then a world in which sovereign man can exercise his ultimate control, his predestinating power and decree. For the for the biblical perspective, as summarised by Augustine, men are divided into two camps, the city of God and the city of man, and the differences are religious, moral, noetic and epistemological. Between these two camps, warfare exists. The opposition, the city of man, must either be converted or fought. The premises of the unregenerate man must be challenged, and the autonomy of his reason exposed as a lie. Man is not neutral, nor is his mind a blank tablet or clean paper, for man is a sinner against God and is bent on twisting all reality to conform to his rebellion. But Aquinas, following Aristotle, held that man's intellect is like a tablet on which nothing is written. This means that the mind, as it confronts nature, is passive to nature, epistemologically and morally, as well as psychologically. It is, to use a modern term, a question of stimulus and response. In consistency with this position, evil is a privation, a lack, not an active and aggressive power. Man's sin is thus a privation, a lack of love or certain advantages, and to supply these lacks is to overcome this evil. In any perspective of evil as passive, moral responsibility is implicitly weakened or destroyed, in that the necessary ingredient to goodness is the supply of a lack, whether it of being or of material advantages. 
a passive man is more sinned against than sinning. Man is passive also in his knowledge. He receives sense impressions and reacts to them so that his epistemology has problems of privation or data or a faulty process rather than an active reasoning to establish a lie. In this perspective, man is essentially passive to nature because, in its every facet, this philosophy sees man as basically a creature of nature. If man is a product of nature, he will of necessity be passive toward nature. He is nature's product and therefore totally subject to nature. But this same man will be creative towards God, active towards God, since he is not essentially God's creature but nature's. God is known only through sense experience and the deductions make man makes from these data. According to Aquinas, the existence of God can be proved in five ways. The first argument is from motion, which is the reduction of something from potentiality to actuality. The second is from the nature of the efficient cause. The third is from possibility and necessity. The fourth is taken from the gradation to be found in things. And the fifth is taken from the governance of the world, which shows design rather than chance. These proofs are another way of stating that knowledge and being are correlative, but it becomes apparent now that this means that man's knowledge and being are correlative. This is the premise rather than an assertion that God's knowledge and the universe of created being are correlative. In terms of this equation, Socrates and Aristotle regarded all wickedness as due to ignorance. For Aquinas, being is pure act. God alone, who is being, is pure act. Quote, a creature is nothing but a limited participation in the act of existing of God, and its essence marks off the measure of that participation. In all created things, therefore, there is a real distinction between essence and act of existing. Man's intellect cannot penetrate the act of existing, which is God. As a result, man can have no positive knowledge of God as he is in himself, but only as he is represented in creatures. Man's own unity rests in his act of existing, which has primacy over essence. In a sense, Aquinas pointed forward to existentialism. His God was the necessary postulate to human thought, to the correlation of knowledge and being. In later eras, the god of Aquinas was increasingly reduced from reality simply to this postulate, and then not entirely a necessary one. The problem has been well illustrated by an incident cited by Anne Fremantle. Quote, when the philosophers William James and Henry Bergson met on May 28, 1905, there were several incidents of silence. And then James asked Bergson straight away how he envisaged the problem of religion. Is it good to believe, but is the, is the experience of God or of oneself? Is the revelation, James asked, our own revelation of God to ourselves, or is it the revelation of God to us? This most central of all questions, did God make us or we him, worried St. Thomas not at all? End quote. 
The fact that Aquinas, with his very earnest and dedicated faith, did not worry over this problem does not obliterate the fact that his philosophy, by transferring the starting point and the given from the ontological trinity to the autonomous mind of man, made the problem unavoidable. Moreover, since it is man's thought which is independently correlative to being, man's intellect is therefore active as it relates to God. In subsequent thinking, it was increasingly to assume the prerogatives of God while denying the responsibilities of man by its passivity to the world of nature. In thought, creative, in morality and psychology, passive, this is the result of St. Thomas's incorporation of Aristotle into Christian thought. Aquinas held to the predestination of God, but he also prepared the way for the predestination by man, total planning and control by man, as man makes his knowledge correlative to being by controlling evolution, society and the entire social order. Section 6 common ground in being. For Aquinas, there is a common world of God and man. For, quote, being is found to be common to all things, however otherwise different, end quote. From one principle of being, all things have their existence. The Archimedean point in this one world of being is the intellect of man and the correlativity of knowledge and being. In Nigren's words, with respect to the medieval idea of love, so the Thomistic perspective, quote, recalls a Gothic cathedral where the massive stone rests firmly on the earth and yet everything seems to aspire upwards, end quote. Nature, thus, is the starting point, the foundation, and as we have seen, quote, grace does not destroy nature but perfects it. Thus, quote, for Aquinas, the natural is inherently defective. It partakes of the nature of non-being. Hence, sin is partly, at least, to be ascribed to finitude. For Coper, the natural as it came from the hand of God was perfect, end quote, although liable to an ethical fall as well as to development. Aquinas substituted for the Greek formata dialectic, not the Christian view, but a similar dialectic of grace and nature. In this tension, one or the other had to be sacrificed. For Thomism, quote, the two foundational tenets of this system were the positing of the, auton the autonomy of natural reason in the entire sphere of natural knowledge, and the thesis that nature is the understructure of supernatural grace, end quote. Aquinas's attempt to reconcile a Greek dialectic to Christian theology created insuperable problems. Quote, the Greek formata motive in all its different conceptions excludes, in principle, the idea of creation in its biblical sense. The sum total of Greek wisdom concerning the origin of the cons cosmos is ex nihilo nihil fit, from nothing, nothing can originate. At the utmost, Greek metaphysical theology could arrive at the idea of a divine demiurge, who gives form to an original matter as the supreme architect and artist. Therefore, the scholastic accommodation of the Aristotelian concept of God 
to the church doctrine of creation could never lead to a reconciliation with the biblical ground motive. The unmoved mover of Aristotelian metaphysics, who, as the absolute theoretical noose, only has himself as the object of his thought in blessed self-contemplation, is the radical opposite of the living God who revealed himself as creator. Thomas may teach that God has brought forth natural things according both to their form and matter, but the principle of matter as the principle of metaphysical and religious imperfection cannot find its origin in a pure form, God. Nor could the Aristotelian conception of human nature be reconciled to the biblical conception concerning the creation of men in the image of God. According to Thomas, human nature is a composition of a material body and a rational soul as a substantial form, which, in contradistinction to Aristotle's conception, is conceived of as an immortal substance. This scholastic view has no room for the biblical conception of the radical religious unity of human existence. Instead of this unity, a natural and supernatural aspect is distinguished in the creation of man. The supernatural side was the original gift of grace, which, as a donum superaditum, was ascribed to the rational nature. Man, a composite, finds his principle of individuality in matter, whereas the intellectual principle is the form of man. This means a fundamental deprecation of individuality, since in the Aristotelian view, matter is the principle of imperfection. Thomas Aquinas seeks the principium individuationis in a Materia signata vel individualis, Summa Theologiae 3, 72-2, a conception that frankly contradicts his scholastic Christian view of individual immortality of the rational soul as form and substance. In order to save the latter, he had to take refuge in the hypothesis of formae separate that were individualized by their having been created in proportion to a material body. End quote. Section 7. The One and the Many in Aquinas. This means that Aquinas had a problem in maintaining any proper relationship between the one and the many, since particularity was an attribute of matter. First of all, Aquinas tended to separate his universals from God, and he held that in God there is neither universal nor particular. For Aquinas, the one precedes the many. Quote, Hence Plato said that unity must come before multitude, and Aristotle said that whatever is greatest in being and greatest in truth is the cause of every being and of every truth, just as whatever is the greatest in heat is the cause of all heat. End quote. This is the basis of Thomas's doctrine of creation, the one as the cause of the many, because the many must, by definition, originate in the one. For Aristotle, this made man a creature of the state, the social one, and the universe the creature of chaos, the cosmic one. The source for Aquinas is the one, and the, the goal is also the one. Unity in which the many may find their perfection.
He did, of course, try to maintain a balance between the one and the many, between universals and particulars, holding that, to have real existence, the universals must exist in the particulars as their essence, not as abstractions beside them. He sought to maintain this balance in every area. Section 8. The State In accepting Aristotle, Aquinas, quote, was prepared to accept the doctrine that man was a political being whose potentialities could only be fulfilled in political society, end quote. The Christian revolution of the early centuries had been a great one, quote, where the matter of sovereignty is concerned. In the days before Christianity, the world knew of one sovereign, one sovereignty only, that of the state, which exercised its sway alike on religious and civil life, on the spiritual and on the temporal. With the advent of Christianity, this unity was destroyed. End quote. Augustinianism placed church and state alike under the sovereignty of God. Aquinas, by holding to the perfection of nature by grace, made the church the perfection of the state and the superior authority. The state had an autonomy in the natural sphere, but at every point this natural sphere pointed to and was perfected in the sphere of grace. Hence, at every point in the state, while independent of, was subordinate to the church. What Leclerc called the Christian Revolution was, according to Doyavierd, quote, the death blow to the Aristotelian view of a perfect con community. The latter implied a transformation of the divine world in divine world order into a metaphysical order of reason, and in its theory of the substantial form of human nature, it arrested the transcendental, transcendental societal idea of mankind in the idea of a rational and moral perfection attainable in the state alone. The Christian view did not place a new community, the church in its transcendent religious sense, on a parallel with, or if need be, above all temporal relationships, as a merely higher level in the development of human perfection, nor did it project a cosmopolitical temporal community of mankind beyond all boundaries of families, races and states in the Stoic fashion. Instead, it laid bare the religious meaning totality of all social relationships, each of which ought to express this meaning totality according to its own inner structure. Without this insight into the radical spiritual foundation of human societal life, the differentiation of structural principles of temporal society cannot be understood in its true meaning. End quote. By reviving this Aristotelian concept, Aquinas did two things. First, he made the church the true state of man in the ultimate sense, as the perfection of nature. Second, he gave to the state a freedom from the Christian doctrine of the state and a rationale for its revived assertion that man's true life and community are attainable in the state alone. His Aristotelianism destroyed medieval Augustinianism and furthered two counterclaims to total power, the state and the church, each claiming to be the order of true reason and of man's perfection. A further danger was created by Thomism. The dialectical tension between nature and grace led to a desire by some 
to shave off the ostensibly superfluous world of grace and leave to nature a world of anarchic plurality. Whereas others so infused the world of nature with the divine being that a virtual pantheism was created. The result was a cultural collapse. Aquinas had earnestly sought a new weapon for the faith in the Aristotelian thought of the Arabic and Jewish Enlightenment of the Middle Ages. The immediate result was a new and broader claim to power for the Church, but by introducing a non-Christian foundation into the structure of the Church, the scholastics also introduced this same pagan foundation into the university, into the state, and into all of man's life. In terms of this foundation, non-Christian and anti-Christian motives and directions were built into every area of late medieval life to the destruction of Christian order. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.